Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Basics webinar. It's so good to be back together this evening, and we hope that you'll enjoy the next half hour or so as we look at some more principles from the Word of God. And this week, once again, we're going to break our Bible seminar into two sections. As we look through an overview of the scriptures, we're going to look at the fact that the nation chose a king, and that king, of course, was King Saul. And uh, he's a very important king, one of the kings whose character is described in the most detail in scriptures. And we're going to actually make use a little more of our Bibles tonight. I don't have all the slides or the references up on the screen. So if you don't have your Bible in front of you, you might want to in the next minute or so grab your Bible and have it available as a reference this evening. And then in our second half, uh, Mr. David Wisniewski joins us again and he's going to examine the topic of forgiveness. We're gonna see how that's an important topic in both the Old and New Testaments. So we welcome you to settle in and uh, to join with us as we look into our Bible studies tonight. Now, just like last week, I'd like to start off in the book of Acts. Now, this is the time you might remember when Paul was giving a speech to the men of Antioch and introducing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's really just giving a short four or five verse introduction to the nation. And he's introduced the period of the judges. You can see there at the beginning of the slide there, the passage, it talks about the judges that were there until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then he introduces the next part of the history of the nation, that the nation of Israel asks God for a king and God gives them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And uh, I think a key point is to realize is that God was asking them for a king. And in response, God gives them King Saul. Now, before we get into this, I think it's important to have a little bit of context from the judges. You might remember last week, we looked at the cycle of, of sin, that there was a series of cycles where about 12 different judges judged the kingdom of Israel. And the nation, of course, was greatly influenced by the Canaanites, which represent sin. And they repeatedly turned away from God to the idolatry of the nations of Canaan, both in their worship and in their practice. And what we learned last week is that God wouldn't give up on them, just like he doesn't give up on us if we turn to sin or, or sin. So he allowed them to be oppressed by the surrounding nations. He brought difficulty into their lives in the hopes that they would repent and turn back to him. And, and God might send us trials to turn us back to him, to turn us around. And the nation then would, would actually repent. They'd pray to God and God would send a deliverer and there would be a period of peace. And inevitably, the cycle would begin again. But the real defining statement of the period of the judges was that there was no king. And as a result of there being no king, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And we have the repetition of this phrase in in the last several chapters of the book of Judges. And so combined, we have the cause and effect. Because there was no king, everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. There was no authority figure. And the people threw off that responsibility to authority and chose to do what they thought was right themselves. And unfortunately, that's a pretty accurate description of the age that we live in. There's a very strong tendency for every man to do what they think is right. And ultimately, we'll learn tonight that it, it wasn't just that there was no king, 
It's that the people didn't accept God as their king. That was the real problem. If they had had God as their king, things would have gone very much differently. And it says, as this with our back, this is our background, that we come to the next stage of the history of the nation of Israel, where they ask for a king. So the nation is now going to become a monarchy, a nation with a king at its head. And uh, by chapters, this is probably the most significant period in their history. It's more descriptive. Uh, there's more description of this period than any other period when they had a king. And the monarchy is going to last right up to the period of their captivity in Babylon. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to open it up to 1 Samuel and chapter 8. So rather than put all the references on the screen tonight, I thought it would be a good idea for us to really have our Bibles open tonight and read through a couple chapters of the Bible. Not all of them, but just some of the key details. And, and the first chapter we want to look at is 1 Samuel chapter 8. So I've got my Bible here, and uh, in verse 1, we're introduced to Samuel, who actually is the last of the judges. It says in verse 1, it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. So his sons were judges too, but he was probably the last real judge because his sons were told in verse 3 were evil. They walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, which is an uh, old English word for money, and took bribes and perverted judgment. So they, they, were, they were judges that would rather have money than stand up for the truth. They weren't like the saviors or deliverers that we looked at last week. Last week, we were introduced to men who, you know, had weaknesses. But these men seem to be downright wicked. And so the leaders come to Samuel in verse 4 there of 1 Samuel chapter 8. And they gather themselves together to Samuel in Ramah. And in verse 5, it says, and, and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that request seems quite appropriate based on the circumstances. And while they were right to reject Samuel's sons as judges, there were other motives. You see, they wanted to be like all the other nations. Israel looked around the other nations and said, well, they, they've got kings and we want to be like them. So Samuel wasn't very impressed about this, and uh, he goes to God, but God wouldn't stop him. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And this is the point, that they really weren't, it wasn't about not having a king, it was that they had rejected God from being their king. God had set the rules to this point. God had set up all the principles that they were to follow. And by wanting a king and being like the nations, they were rejecting God. And you can really see the connection to today. The majority of men and women today really have rejected God. The idea today is that God doesn't even exist. Therefore, men can choose what they want. And I, I just have to put this up here. This is a, a bus that was driving around the streets of London several years ago. And it's a sign put up there by atheists. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. And that's the thinking of the world today. That's the spirit here where they were rejecting God. So they start out by having no king, and now they're rejecting God as being their king. And if we go back to the story, then we see that they've really rejected God. 
But lest we get the wrong idea, this was actually something God knew would happen and that he was okay with. There's this verse here then in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee and shalt possess it, shalt dwell therein and shalt say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations are about me. So God's actually telling Moses, you know, when the people get into the land, they're going to want a king and it's okay. He actually gives them rules for choosing a king. It, it had to be a king from their nation. It couldn't be a foreigner and it had to be someone that God would choose. And then there was rules for the king one of which was that they should write down a copy of their own copy of the law of Moses. Now, in fact, the idea of a king goes all the way back to Genesis 49, where we're told about the tribe of Judah, that there would always be a lawgiver that would come from the tribe of Judah. And so that's a very interesting point that I want you to tuck into the back of your mind for a little bit later in the, the webinar. But if we go over then to First Samuel chapter 9, we have the selection of the first king of the nation. And you can see there in verse one, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now that's the father of Saul. Um, and he was a mighty man, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. So we notice, first of all, that this come from a different tribe. But what do you notice as you read on about the emphasis on Saul? It says he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, and a goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. So he's actually known for his, his height, his stature, and his good looks. That's really what Saul was known for. And as we read through the details of this chapter, we learn that Saul doesn't really come from a very spiritual background. In verse 5 and 6, as he's searching for some sheep that he's lost, it's his servant that tells him that there's a man of God living nearby. And when Saul actually meets Samuel, a man you'd think he would know from all the um, activity of Samuel within the nation, he actually asks Samuel, do you know where the prophet lives? And Samuel says, well, I, I'm the prophet. And, and it's incredible to me that Saul doesn't know the great prophet Samuel. And if we were to continue on in, in chapter 10, we'd, we'd, we'd be introduced to the fact that um, when, when they talk about Saul, who was then prophesying and had, was found among the prophets after a bit of time with, with Samuel the prophet, the nation said, is Saul also among the prophets? I can't believe Saul is saying things that are related to the scriptures is the idea. And one of the commentators that I have says that this was almost like the saying that we have in our English today, um, can pigs fly because it became a proverb within the nation of Israel. So it's very interesting to see the type of man that was first chosen as the king of Israel. Now, you can't lose sight of the fact that God was involved in the selection. If you were to read 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 to 24, you'd learn that Saul was chosen by Lot, that the tribes were gathered together, lots were cast, the tribe of Benjamin was selected, and then further lots were cast until Saul was selected by Lot. So, so God not only instructed Samuel to anoint Saul, God then guides the lots such that Saul was the king that would be revealed to the people. And you see, there was a purpose for God directing the selection of Saul. He wanted to show the nation what it would be like if you had a king that was like the kings of all the other nations, a king that was chosen based on 
on man's principles. And so once again, you see that the events of scripture become a, a very interesting parable for us. And so Saul becomes this first king of Israel. Now, I, I, I think we need to go back to our timeline for a second and see where we've been. We've, we've looked at Genesis. We've looked at the books related to Moses and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. We came to Joshua. And then last week, the 300 years of the judges. Well, tonight we're looking at a period of about 40 years, the first king of Israel. Um, we're looking at a king that reigned for 40 years. Uh, 23 chapters of the Bible talk about King Saul from 1 Samuel chapter 9 to 31. That's a, a fairly large section. And we're in our timeline approximately 1,000 years before Christ. So 3,000 years after Genesis 1 and about 3,000 years ago from today. So we're about in the midpoint of the history that the Bible talks about. So there's a lot of detail that we could comb through in, in looking at Saul's life. But we have to realize that it's also intertwined with a better known king, which is King David. So as we alluded to, King Saul is, is not a stirring example of a, a righteous ruler. In fact, Saul was rather a complete failure. And I wanna take one event from his life as an example. So if you just turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, just a couple chapters over. And uh, we're going to look at Sam or Saul, sorry, fighting one of the battles with the nations. Now, remember, all these nations represent sin. So if you come to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. So here's Samuel reminding Saul, your king you need to do what God commands. And so then in verse three, he says, now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep and camel and ass. So remembering that Amalek represents sin, God was saying that the role of the king was to remove all the influence of sin from the nation that he should destroy everything related to Amalek. So when you come down to verse 9, you find out that they were rather successful in the battle. God was with them. But, verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag, that was the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs, and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. So note carefully who spared the best of the animals in Agag the king. So after what seems like a great victory to the people, Samuel is directed to go and speak to Saul. And look at what it says in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So Saul says, I've, I've completely been 100% obedient to the command. But of course, he's lying. He's, he's spared the best of the, of the animals. So Samuel calls him out in verse 14. He says, okay, well, what meaneth this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears? I can, I can hear the animals that God asks you to destroy. And here's the most telling episode or, or point of the episode. It says in verse 15, and Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. 
And Saul blames the people. He won't take responsibility for his actions. And I think when we come to part two of tonight's webinar, you'll see the importance of taking responsibility for our sins, admitting our faults. And so we have the verdict of God, that God is looking for a king who would obey because to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And he rejects Saul from being king. That if you're going to be a king according to your principles and you're going to reject the principles of God, well then God will not allow you to be the king. And that's the parable. And so the last part of the parable is that God takes another man and makes him the king in place of Saul. And if we had time, we'd go through 1 Samuel chapter 16, but I've just pulled out a few of the phrases that you will find in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Um, God chooses a king and he chooses a king for himself. This is going to be the king that's going to show forth his principles. And although God was involved in the selection of Saul, this was a king that would demonstrate the principles that God wanted us to learn. Now, when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint one of his sons, the first son comes in and he's probably a carbon copy of King Saul. He's tall and he's handsome. And God says, no, this isn't the one. I, I'm not looking at his outward appearance. I'm looking at his heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. We're told in Acts 13, which we've looked at or which we've which we, should, we introduced tonight, is that um, after Saul comes David. And it says at the end of verse 22, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So it wasn't to say that David was short and, and unattractive. He was of a beautiful countenance. But the reason he was chosen was because he allowed the spirit of God to come upon him and to influence him. So we see the wonderful reference here in Acts chapter 13. Now, there'd be so much more we would cover if we had time to look at the life of King Saul. What I've done is just illustrated the rest of the chapters of 1 Samuel. And you'll notice that Saul was not a great king. When Goliath comes along, it's not King Saul that defeats him. It's David the shepherd. Because of that, Saul becomes jealous and, and Saul attempts to kill David. Even Jonathan, Saul's son, could see that David was a good king or would be a good king. And when David and Jonathan become friends, or when Jonathan becomes friends with David, Saul seeks to kill his own son. And the rest of the book, David is fleeing away from Saul. Um, Saul's killing the priest. Saul's pursuing David. David has Saul in his sights and spares him. David has a second chance and, Saul, and spares him a second time. And Saul eventually goes to inquire of a woman at Endor. And eventually in chapter 31, Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. So Saul is selfish and jealous, self-serving and vengeful. And David is faithful and righteous, a man after God's own heart. And so we have a, a wonderful parable of the type of leadership that God is looking for in this world. We need leaders that base their rulership on the principles of God and follow God's commandments. And so ultimately, this verse in Acts 13, which we introduced this evening and introduced our class with, eventually goes on to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul's introducing the men of Antioch to Jesus Christ, he goes through the history and he says, you know, there was a period of time where there was judges, where everybody did that which was in, right in their own eyes because there was no king. 
He says, then followed a period of time when, when Saul, a man who was head and shoulders above other people, was king. But because his principles were not based on godly principles, God had to remove him. And ultimately, God was looking to set up a man who was a man after his own heart, who would obey the commandments of God. And then he says to them, of this man's seed, of David's seed, hath God, according to his promise, raised up unto Israel a savior, Jesus. And so really what Paul is doing is introducing us to the type of ruler that the, that the world needs. We're living in an age where every man does that which is right in their own sight. And where there are rulers, they're ruling according to their own principles. But the time will come very shortly when God will send his own son to be the king of the earth. And he'll be a man who's like David, who, who is a man after God's own heart and will complete the will of God. And that's also the topic of next week's seminar. So if you stay with us and, and join us next week, we're going to look at the life of King David. A big topic, but certainly one where we'll find lots of, of lessons for us. So I'm going to turn the class over then to David, who will take us through the Bible theme of forgiveness. Thanks, Dan. And thanks for that uh, fascinating walk through the life of Saul. I uh, just want to confirm that you can see my screen. Yeah, it looks good, David. Excellent. Thank you. Well, as Dan mentioned in the second half of our seminar tonight, we're going to consider a, a fundamental topic as this section of the Bible seminar is coined, uh, Fundamental Bible Teachings, Ideas and Teachings. And we're going to look at the theme of forgiveness, or specifically in the scriptures, the forgiveness of sins. We're going to spend some time walking through this principle and see how the Bible treats it. So I want to start off with a simple definition. What does forgiveness mean? First, we uh, consulted the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which says that forgiveness means to give up resentment or of resentment of or claim to requital of. So there's a dictionary definition of the word forgiveness. If we look at a Bible dictionary uh, on the word forgiveness, which is based on how it's used in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, we'll see that it speaks of a release, a pardon that is removing guilt associated with a moral sin. And so that's, uh, that's how one dictionary defines the word forgiveness in the Bible. I think what is most helpful is to consider how the scriptures deal with the topic of forgiveness. And they'll teach us a lot, I think, about how God operates, how he operates with us, and how he deals with the sins that we commit. For God is holy and righteous and without sin. We find in the scriptures that forgiveness is actually a part of who God is. Forgiveness is a part of who God is. It's part of his core being. It's not his whole core being, but it is a big part of God's core being. And so the psalmist in Psalm 25 at verse 11 writes, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. So when the psalmist asks God to forgive his sin or to pardon his iniquity, as we saw the Bible dictionary definition 
of forgiveness spoke of, he does so on the basis of God's own name. Because the psalmist has come to understand a principle that was taught in the Bible, and that is that God's name, which is, of course, who he is, is bound up in forgiveness. And we're going to see where that comes from. It's actually revealed, of course, it's revealed before this in the record in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve commit the first sin before God, we see that God responds mercifully. Although there's a consequence to their sin, they were cast out of the garden, working would be harder, bearing children would be harder for women. There were definitely consequences, the biggest of which is mortality and our proneness to sin. God provided a way that their sin could be covered back in the garden. So this principle of God's mercy and his forgiveness is actually introduced in, within the first three chapters of our Bible. But specifically in Exodus 34, when Moses is up on the top of Mount Sinai in the wilderness, he has asked God to show God his glory. And what God shows Moses is that his glory is his character, who he is. And look at what he says. He says, my name is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I would encourage you to go to Exodus 33 and 34 and to read the whole context. And actually, Exodus 32 is an even better place to start because we understand the, how this conversation came about that Moses wanted to understand God's character and understand how he forgave sins. So God reveals to Moses that part of his core being is being merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It does go on and say, however, he will not pardon the guilty. And so if we're stuck in persistent in our sin, well, then God will hold us accountable for that. Let's look at how the same language is picked up by a psalmist once again in Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Well, there we see the same words that were spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord God, merciful and gracious. So once again, the psalmist is calling back to these events which took place on Mount Sinai, where God revealed his character to the man Moses. The psalmist has done it in Psalm 25, for thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity. He's calling on God's mercy and graciousness. He's calling on God's forgiveness. Well, the psalmist in Psalm 103 continues that God is slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He then says he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. If we were dealt with after our sins and rewarded according to our iniquities, well, we know from the New Testament, from Paul's letter in Romans, that the wages of sin, what is due us when we commit sin, is death. And so the psalmist is saying, well, God doesn't deal with us in that way. He's not dealt with us after our sins. We still live nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. We would all be rejected if God did that. But then he says, for as the heaven 
is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Now there's a qualifier in that psalm, isn't there? His mercy is great, even as the heaven is high above the earth, toward them that fear him. And the word fear means to have a reverence, to worship God, to honor God. And we honor God in the, in the way we live our lives, when we try to reflect his character, when we try to be merciful and gracious to others and forgiving to others. And when we do that, when we reflect God's character in our own actions and in our own words, and when we reverence our God and have a healthy fear of him, knowing that he is the giver and taker of life, well then, God has mercy towards us. Why is God so willing to forgive? Well, the same psalm, Psalm 103, goes on. And we read, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Well, we just looked at that topic last week, didn't we? I believe it was last week when we looked at the soul and we saw that we were taken out of the dust of the ground and we were given God's breath of life. God breathed into that lifeless form that he created out of the dirt, out of the dust. He breathed life into it. And when we die, we considered last week that we return to the dust. And that's what the psalmist says here in Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field which we can stop and admire, but then the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. So just as a flower grows up and might be beautiful, might be tall in stature, might be noticeable, eventually the flower fades and the plant crumbles and ultimately goes back into the dirt and there's no record of it even having been there. And it says God recognizes that we're like that flower, that we are like that grass, that we have just a limited time here on the earth. And he recognizes not only do we have a limited time and that we're dust, but he also knows that we're prone to sin based on the sin that took place in the garden, our forefathers. And because of that sin, we're prone to sin and we're dying. We'll return to the dust. The psalmist continues, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So we might live for a short period of time. One psalmist says 70 or 80 years. Nowadays, it's a, perhaps a little longer on average. We might live for just a short period of time, but God's love which is steadfast, it's consistent, and it's always there, is from everlasting to everlasting. And his righteousness, he does that which is right to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Well, again, as we go through this psalm, we can see that this mercy, this compassion, this love, this righteousness, this forgiveness is given a context. And we've highlighted those words there in green. He shows compassion to those who fear him. 
There's the same words we saw earlier to those that fear him, those that have a reverential honor for God, those that worship God, that take the time out of their week to worship God, those that communicate with God, that speak to him through prayer, and that read his word uh, on a daily basis. So those are the ones that God will have compassion on. Yes, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. And he extends those qualities to those that respond to his qualities and that try to show forth the same qualities in their life. We see there in the last paragraph, again, his steadfast love is on those who fear him. Same word once again. We've seen it three times now in these two Psalms that we've looked at. And his righteousness goes to not just children, but grandchildren, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So it's not a free pass, friends. There is a requirement for us if we want to be the recipients of God's forgiveness. Well, when we come into the New Testament, we read about the man, Jesus Christ. And we ask the question, well, what is Jesus' role in the forgiveness of sins? And we see that topic is dealt with in the New Testament. Dan took us to a passage in Acts, and we'll, we'll look now at another passage in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples stood in the midst of Jerusalem, and there were Jews that had come from all the nations around Israel, had come down to celebrate the feast. And Peter stands up in the midst and he commands all the audience there to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So there's a few items to consider in that verse, isn't there? First of all, we saw in those Old Testament references, we need to fear God, that we need to keep the covenant, and we need to strive to obey his commandments. So there's a responsibility on us. When we come to the New Testament, though that responsibility is expanded even further. We're to repent, which we'll see in the Old Testament again, and to be baptized. So there's a condition for the remission of sins, and we'll consider that word remission in a minute. Then it says in Matthew 26, these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he's sitting at the Last Supper with his 12 closest friends, the 12 disciples, uh, outside of those women who also followed Jesus through his ministry, who were also very close friends. He says to the 12 disciples, for this is my blood when he's passing the cup of wine. In symbol, the cup of wine represented Jesus' blood of the New Testament or the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. There we've got that phrase again, remission of sins. And the word remission means forgiveness. Remission means forgiveness. So the forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus' death resulted in the forgiveness of sins. It says in Hebrews chapter 7 at verse 25, Consequently, 
he, that is Jesus, is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him. The consequently is because he was crucified and died in obedience to God and then was raised and now sits at the right hand of the Father as a high priest, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives, he lives forever to make intercession for them. Well, that's an interesting phrase, to make intercession for them. What does it mean to make intercession for somebody? Well, the word intercession actually means to meet in the middle, to meet in the middle. And here's here we're being told that Jesus, who because of his crucifixion, his obedient death on the cross, because of that, we have the opportunity to have our sins forgiven, and Jesus will be our intercessor. He'll meet in the middle. What middle is it talking about? Well, it's talking about between God and men. We might say, well, why do we need somebody to meet in the middle or to bridge the gap, as it's called as well? And the answer is in Isaiah 59 and verse 2, where we read, But your iniquities have separated between you and God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So when we sin, friends, we're separated from God. There's a breach. A breach has been made. We've disobeyed God's commandment in one way or another, maybe by something we've done or something we should have done and we didn't do. There's a breach in the relationship between us and God that comes about because of our sin. But we have an intercessor, someone who will stand in the middle Jesus, who knows what it's like to be tempted, as it describes earlier in Hebrews and considered in our past classes, he stands in the breach that we created when we sinned between us and God. So Jesus becomes an intercessor for us. Jesus' sacrifice, his crucifixion, provides for us then that forgiveness of sins. So let's take a look then at the path to forgiveness. In Psalm 32, this is a psalm that was written by David, the man that Dan was just speaking to us about, the the king that foreshadows the future king that God will have rule over his kingdom on earth. That King David, at a low point in his life, commits a sin that's very grievous. One, that there was no opportunity under the law that he lived for any redemption from it. There was only a death sentence for the sins he had committed. And he recognizes that. And what does David do? He says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, who unto the Lord, it says later on in the verse. David acknowledged his sin to God, and mine iniquity have I not hid, he says. I said to myself, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And the result of it, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. So there's first an acknowledgement of the sin. There's not a hiding of the sin. There's a confession of the sin, of the transgression. And then there's the forgiving of the sin. 
So here's the process then. We sin, although we strive not to. We fall and we fail. We confess our sins to God or our sin to God, and God forgives us. Well, we saw in the last passage that Jesus plays a role in that process. It was by his crucifixion, his death on the cross, that we have this process made available to us. And it's not our topic this evening. It would be great to consider this evening, but how the sacrifice or the crucifixion of Jesus affected even those that were in the Old Testament. In short, in summary, it's because they all looked forward to that sacrifice that God would make the crucifixion of his only begotten son. And it was through faith in God's ability to forgive that they of the Old Testament and us of the New Testament have forgiveness of sins. Well, there's two things that I want to ask at this point. One is, we may have noticed that a lot of these passages we looked at were taken from the Psalms and even from Isaiah. We might think to ourselves, well, those are in the Old Testament. And we might have heard the phrase, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and that the God in the Old Testament is vengeful and a God of wrath, and the God in the New Testament is a forgiving God, a God of love. And that's not true. The Bible says that God doesn't change. And it doesn't just say that in the Old Testament. It says it at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, but it also says it in the book of James in the New Testament. God doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The God that was willing to forgive sins all the way back in the Garden of Eden is willing to forgive sins in the New Testament as well by the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the one observation we have of the passages we've been through. Now, there's a second observation we make when we consider all the verses we've looked at so far that we've summarized in these three boxes. And that observation is that there's no other person involved in the process of forgiveness. Of course, Jesus Christ is involved. He made the process available to us. It's through Jesus that God forgives us. But there's no man, there's no mortal man on this earth that's involved in that process. Now, it is true that we can pray that God would forgive someone else's sins, and in that way we might be involved, but some churches teach that you need to go to the priest or the minister and that that person will forgive sins. Well, that's not, my friends, what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God forgives sins. Even in the New Testament, Jesus taught his disciples to pray to God and ask God to forgive their sins. Of course, Jesus also is able to forgive sins because God gave him that authority. Well, I want to ask this question again. What does forgiveness mean? And it's incredible when we explore this answer just a little bit deeper now in our last slide when we consider the subject of forgiveness. That psalm we looked at that spoke so deeply about God's forgiveness, which I highly recommend you spend some time considering and meditating upon. Psalm 103 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath God removed our transgressions from us. Well, my friends, the east and the west never meet. 
If you start going east, you'll never meet the west. And if you start going west, you'll never meet the east. They're opposite directions. And so what we're being told is that God has removed our transgressions from us forever when we repent and ask for forgiveness and fear God and strive to obey his commandments. God will remove our sins from us completely. And Isaiah 38, the writer says, Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. And in the New Testament, in Jude, small epistle, the second last book of the, the New Testament, we read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So God can present us blameless before the presence of his glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that process we looked at on the last slide is made available through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. So there we see east and west never meet. Our transgressions once forgiven are gone. And furthermore, once they're forgiven, they're no longer visible. The writer of, in Isaiah says, For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. If they're behind our back, well, then we can't see them, can we? Our sins are no longer visible to God once they're forgiven. And when we stand before Jesus at the judgment seat, friends, when the kingdom of God is going to be established on this earth, we who are sinners can be seen as sinless because of the completeness of God's forgiveness. What a wonderful blessing we have. What a God of love we read of in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Well, next week, friends, we invite you to join us once again. And in our first section, we'll be continuing on from the choosing of Saul, a king after the hearts of the people, to the choosing of David, a man who was after God's own heart. And Dan's given us a, a little sneak peek into what King David was like. And there's so much written about David, not only in the historical record, but even in the Psalms that we were just considering, that uh, it'll be tough for Dan to get through all that next week. And then we also have, uh, under the key Bible themes, the second portion, the topic of true peace that passes all understanding. And we invite you to join us once again next week for consideration of these themes. By way of reminder, uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you do have any questions, you're invited to post those into the chat once we're finished here in a minute. But you can also send us an email. Uh, you can connect to us on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, your thoughts, your questions, uh, and what we hope is that the topics that we cover just just barely cover in these webinars uh, will get your interest going and you'll spend some more time research the, researching these things for yourselves. Mm -hmm.